This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Lane Davis, and I'm your host. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Jonathan Zimmerman. Dr. Zimmerman is the Judy and Howard Berkowitz Professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He is the author of several books, including the one we're discussing today, The Amateur Hour, A History of College Teaching in America, published in 2020 by Johns Hopkins University Press. Dr. Zimmerman, congratulations on the new book and welcome to New Books in History. Thank you, Lane. It's good to be here. So before we start talking about the book specifically, would you just give our listeners a a brief introduction to your own work and research and just specifically what led you to study the history of college teaching? Well, I, um, I have a PhD in history. Uh, before that time, I was a school teacher, uh, both in Vermont and Maryland, and before that, as a Peace Corps volunteer in Nepal. And uh, when I went to graduate school, because I had been a teacher, I had this weird idea that what I would end up doing was studying the history of education. And that actually uh, became true. And I've spent my career studying the ways that schools and universities operate, and especially the controversies surrounding them. That is the ways that different citizens in the United States and around the world imagine education uh, and how they work through their different views of it. Hmm, Excellent. So your book uh, explores a paradox in American higher education. And the, the paradox you note is that while almost all of the activity that happens in American college or university life falls under the authority of some sort of bureaucratic umbrella teaching, has largely remained outside of that umbrella and instead has relied on what uh, Max Weber called a person's charisma. I guess explain this thesis. uh, How did you come to it? And and how has American education embodied this paradox while other systems, and you you note the German system specifically, have not? Well, what what, uh, this gets the title of the book, of course, The Amateur Hour. And Mm -hmm. Um, What I'm really arguing is that at the American university, we managed to professionalize research and not teaching. To be really clear, and I want your listeners to get this, I don't mean to attack teaching or college teachers with the title. To call somebody an amateur, I don't think means that they do what they do badly. Um, When I was a kid, the leading gymnasts in the world with names like Olga Corbett and Nadia Comaneci were amateurs. Uh, because mm-hmm. back then you had to be an amateur to compete in the Olympics, and they were the greatest athletes in the world. So obviously they're terrific college teachers and they're terrible college teachers, um, but they're all amateurs. 
because what we failed to do is to do what professionals do, which is, first of all, to come up with a shared idea about what good practice is, and secondly, to figure out um, uh, mechanisms for evaluating it. Um, we just don't have those four teaching. For research, of course, we do. So the book that I just published that we're talking about today, uh, in order to publish it, I had to get it vetted by other experts in my field. Uh, that's what we call peer review. Um, my teaching is not evaluated that way. So um, I've now been at Penn for over four years, and I've never been evaluated in my classroom by somebody with supervisory authority over me. Hmm. Um, I could be doing anything. Um, uh, and so um, I, that's what I mean by a failure to professionalize. We just hmm. don't have, I think, a consensus or a system for judging amongst ourselves even what good and bad teaching is, uh, let alone for figuring out who's doing it and who isn't. So let's get into the history of this. So you point to a particular quote that was uh, made by James Garfield in 1871. He was then a congressman from Ohio, and and he was giving a, a lecture uh, or an, an address to an alumni dinner at uh, for his uh, college, Williams College. And he said uh, this, a log cabin with a pine bench in it with Mark Hopkins at one end and me at the other is a good enough college for me. So tell us who Mark Hopkins was and why was this form of teaching the ideal for Garfield? Well, Mark Hopkins was first a, quote, professor and then the president of Williams College. I say a, quote, professor because that meant something very different back in the 1820s and 1830s when he started at Williams. Um, He only had a couple of years of uh, post-secondary education. Uh, I think maybe two years studying medicine and maybe a year studying theology. Um, But Mark Hopkins wasn't an expert in the way that we think of that term today. Um, What he was, to go back to the language you used in your first question, was a hugely charismatic figure who had enormous influence over people like James Garfield, who was his student at Williams College. Even though Mark Hopkins didn't have um, expertise, as we define it, and didn't do research, um, what he did and what he demonstrated was an enormous personal interest in his students. And that's what Garfield is referring to there. Um, the care that Mark Hopkins took of his students, and also Garfield's feeling that what a good university was, was a place that had lots of people like Mark Hopkins. You know, at that dinner at Delmonico's, which was the fancy restaurant in Manhattan, he's Mm -hmm. talking to a bunch of contributors or potential contributors to Williams. He's talking to alums. And what he's actually asking them to do is to invest in teachers, not in bricks and mortar. In the same passage, he talks about Williams adding libraries and adding gymnasiums and all that stuff. And he says, that's all fine and good. But really, what the institution should be about is teaching and teachers. And the best school will be one that has more people like Mark Hopkins. Hmm. So you note that in the the progressive era, then that, that was a unique time when the image of Mark Hopkins and the log this is a quote. Sorry, sorry, by the way. The image of Mark Hopkins and the log continued to inspire a vision of college teaching that was ever more distant from the ways that most Americans experienced it. Um, you say universities were, were central to the progressive ideal of technical expertise. 
but the practice of teaching was often an, an odd fit within that progressive agenda. I guess talk a bit about teaching during that era and why it was so difficult for figures. Uh, you mentioned Woodrow Wilson um, at Princeton. Why, why it was so difficult for reform to take root? Well, what, what happened starting in the 1880s and 1890s is that we create a different professoriate in the United States. Um, first, by sending people to Germany to get PhDs, and, and then uh, later by developing PhD programs ourselves. And what a PhD marked you as was a certain sort of expert that had done original research. Um, and you were judged based on that research. And to cut back to your point about Mark Hopkins, later, that is in the progressive era, Mark Hopkins get in, gets invoked in a nostalgic way mm. as the sort of professor who was there because he cared about students and because his primary purpose was to educate and to care for students. That will go away with the creation of the research university. Obviously, the professors there still continue to teach, just like I do. But to cut back to my first point, I'm only really evaluated in a professional and in a consequential way based on my research. And that's because of the progressive revolution, which ends up lionizing and pedestalizing research uh, in ways that we're still trying to trying to grapple with and I think trying to reform. Um, uh, to take your second question about why it was so difficult to do that, um, I think there are a couple reasons, but I think the first one goes back to the charismatic adjective that you used earlier. Um, Mark Hopkins, his authority was tied up in his person, mm-hmm. not in what he published, and he published very little. And I do think teaching is an irreducibly personal activity. And that does make it difficult to professionalize because our persons are so deeply tied up in it. So I just published this book, Lane, that we're talking about. And um, you and other readers may like the book and may not like it. Uh, um, Some of you will find it illuminating. Others won't. Some of you will think it's evocative and others won't. But I'll be completely honest, whatever you think about my book, I'm actually not going to take your judgment personally Hmm. because I'm not the book. I did write the book. I I expended a lot of energy writing the book, but I don't feel like the book is an expression of my personhood. Hmm. However, Lane, if you were to come to my class that I'm teaching and you told me that in some way I was insufficient or I wasn't doing right by my students, would I take that personally? Yes. <laughs> um, yes, I would. Um, uh, and I think that this is an erstwhile reason why it's been so difficult to professionalize teaching and also why professors have resisted that um, mm. because it's very difficult to have your teaching under a professional microscope precisely because it is so personal and so tied up in your personhood. Hmm. That's very interesting. I, yes. Uh, feedback is a very difficult thing for any of us to hear, I think, especially honest feedback. So that, that makes complete sense. Now in the 1920s and, and 30s, uh, you know, critics of American higher education begin attacking the industrialization of colleges and universities. You call it the, uh, the gigantism of universities when they were filling these huge lecture halls. Um, 
and this gave rise to a to a wave of student unrest across campuses around the nation. Uh, talk about this issue of gigant gigantism and what what came from the student unrest. Um, well, you know, the 1920s begins what I call this kind of contrapuntal pattern in the history of teaching and its reform at the university. And the pattern is the institution grows very rapidly. Um, what that does is create enormous and impersonal classes. And that in turn creates protest. A big theme in the book is there's been a lot of student dissatisfaction and protests surrounding teaching. And it really begins in the 1920s, the pattern I'm describing, because the universities grow at such an accelerated clip then. Um, The major reasons for that is it was a time of relative prosperity in the United States. And also it was a time because of that prosperity that more and more students were able uh, able to go to college, especially women who had largely, although not entirely absent from higher ed before that time, um, they start going in droves. And suddenly at places like University of Michigan, what you have, if you look at uh, student reports, is um, students arriving at class and they say, okay, this is a room that's uh, clearly constructed for 80 people. There are 280 people there people sitting outside, people sitting in the halls and in the vestibules and in the aisles. Um, There's some guy up in front with a mic that doesn't work and he's mumbling. I can't even hear him. Mm. Um, What am I doing here? Mm. Uh, What are we doing here? Um, And this gigantism, sometimes it was called Fordism, which was a nod, of course, to Henry Ford, was this critique that as universities became larger, they became more mechanized. Um, they became indeed more impersonal. So the reforms that are demanded, and this also kind of initiates a pattern, are ones that try to make teaching more personal, which is a recurring theme in my book. So what you also have going into the late 20s and early 30s is you have the creation of um, tutorials, which are smaller meetings between often younger professors and students. Um, You have the creation of a a so-called conference system at Rollins College where teachers and students would work together, again, in small groups on shared intellectual and research problems. You have the creation of of, um, honors programs, which are, again, designedly small, and other reforms in that zone to try to make teaching not just more important, but more personal. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So one of the themes of your book, to me anyway, seems that that there's a real tangle of emphases and desires uh, between educators and between the American public, between politicians, between students, all, all of these uh, vested uh, interest, uh, and, and all of these have conflicted with each other, and and that seems to really come out, especially during the period where you talk about the the interwar uh, years, and then moving into the Cold War uh, years. Um, so there there seems to be these desires for more personal teaching, as you note, uh, a constant theme through the book. But also there's these desires for technological and cultural supremacy. You can actually measure that, of course, in research and scholarly output. 
And of course, there's the belief that, oh, we're not like the Soviets. We have freedom of expression. But of course, we know that there are always limits to academic freedom. So I, I guess just talk so, uh, about some of these forces that were, were sort of happening in colleges and universities during this Cold War period in the middle of the 20th century. And, and what was going on during this time? Yes. Well, you know, what we see in the immediate wake of, of uh, the Second World War is, again, a repetition of that pattern I was alluding to earlier, um, mm. rapid growth and then critique. Um, this time, the rapid growth comes from the federal government, especially from the GI Bill, uh, this enormously important and influential piece of legislation passed in 1944 um, that created federal monies to help uh, return veterans both buy a home and go to university. And it's impossible for us, I think, in retrospect, to imagine uh, the, uh, the incredibly accelerated um, uh, effect of this bill. So by 1947, half of the undergrads on our campuses are veterans. Remember, the war doesn't end until 1945. So that's in two years' time. And at campuses, you also have the creation of these, uh, the, these graduate student villages with, with great names like Fertile Acres and Veteran Villages because, you know, these guys, you know, they, they like came back from the war, started school, got married, and had babies all like in a week and a half. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but not quite. Um, and, and the change was just, again, so rapid and so telescoped. And so, you know, suddenly – that the schools are getting much, much larger, but they're also getting much, much larger with a new population called veterans. And these veterans, they're pretty tough customers. You know, mm. I mean, these are guys who fought like at Okinawa and the Battle of the Bulge, you know, and they come back and they see some of this terrible teaching and they're not having it, you know. Mm. Um, uh, and they say, you know, look, um, in the army, we got trained a lot better than the education we're getting here at the university. Um, a lot of this is highly inadequate. Again, it's way too big. The classes are way too big. Um, and also the instruction isn't very good. Um, uh, and there, again, you know, what you see are, you know, demands for smaller classes, including including seminars. You see demands for training of new professors in teaching, which is something that uh, again, you know, um, uh, uh, still hasn't really happened, you know, not in an extended way. Um, but since you mentioned technology, what you also see it, are the, the rise of technological solutions or at least attempted solutions to the problem, especially educational TV. Um, mm. And, you know, TV grows almost as rapidly as the universities do. You know, we the first people get it in, you know, 48, 49. And by the end of the 50s, almost everyone has a television. And in response to the complaints by the GIs and others, a lot of people at universities and, and indeed in the foundation world, which spent a lot of money on educational TV, they start to say, look, if, if, uh, if Lane Davis is a great teacher and somebody else isn't, let's just put Lane Davis on television. <laughs> um, then lots and lots of people will get the benefits of Lane Davis and they won't get the downside of all those other terrible teachers. Mm. Um, uh, the other thing, of course, that happens in the Cold War, I mean, there are many things that are relevant to this, but the other is um, that uh, there are severe restrictions on speech within the university, you know, um, spawned by the Red Scare, which we often describe under the rubric of McCarthyism. Um, so, you know, the other irony of this story is at the very same moment that the university is growing ever larger, 
Um, uh, and there are lots of complaints about the poor quality of teaching. One of the arguments that I make is that that quality is inhibited still further by the restraints that are put on teacher speech. So on the one hand, we're saying we need smaller classes that are dialogic, that are discussion-based. But at the same time, what we're saying is, but you can't really talk about the Soviet Union or China, not in a critical way. You can't read Karl Marx except by declaring beforehand that you don't like Karl Marx. Mm. And what all these constraints do are they put serious restrictions on precisely the sort of, quote, discussion that we're saying we want in the universities. So this, of course, carries us into the 1960s and the 1970s, and these were uh, really decades of, of cultural turmoil on college campuses and, and were really centered in college campuses uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, you, you note that one of the important questions of this era for education uh, was just the question of why in the world do we have colleges? Uh, and that this was very much a debated question during this period. So what were some of the responses uh, that, that came out of this inquiry? Right. Well, again, I think that it's important to emphasize that this, uh, this, this, this new era that you're talking about in some ways echoes an old pattern, again, of growth. And right, right. So, you know, this time, again, the federal government is involved, but not through the GI Bill, through the Higher Ed Act and the Higher Ed Facilities Acts and all of the other federal dollars that flow into the higher ed system starting in, the, you know, in the mid-60s. Uh, I think that the Higher Ed Act of 1965, except for the GI Bill, is probably the most important piece of federal legislation in the history of higher ed, because it's in that one that Lyndon Johnson says, look, if you have the uh, the ability and the wish to go to college, the federal government should, um, uh, uh, should make sure that you're able to do so financially. Um, and so what we see is a, another just enormous bout of growth, especially in community colleges. I mean, at one point in the 60s, there's a new community college uh, appearing on the average uh, weekly, which is crazy to think about. Um, uh, but um, that's also where you start to see, you know, intro to psychology at the University of Minnesota with 2,000 students. Hmm. Um, and to your question, Lane, about the purpose um, I remember, let's also, this, this is also the era of uh, uh, the, the beginnings of the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, um, uh, uh, um, uh, enormous uh, protest at, uh, you know, um, uh, on college campuses about those things. But one of the points I try to make in my book is that we tend to forget that a lot of those protests also targeted um, to go back to your question of purpose, the poor quality of college teaching. So mm. figures like Mario Savio, who was the leader of the free speech movement at, at Berkeley, um, he spoke and wrote extensively about the poor quality of teaching at places like the University of California. Um, uh, and, and what he argued is that universities, in fact, were um, distracting us from ultimate questions of purpose, to use your term. Um, and that's one of the reasons the United States was becoming such a desiccated and unequal place. What higher ed should do is force us to ask existential questions about the kind of country and the kind of world we want to live in. Um, it shouldn't just prepare us to become, you know, drones and robots in this new corporate landscape, which is the sort of language that Savio used. Hmm. So it seems like there was also really a, a very notable shift 
during this period, um, especially in the 1970s, you note a, a shift towards social scientific methods of reform and and specifically measurement. Um, I'm thinking about you know new programs using psychology and other other different measurements. What what's an example or two of those reform efforts that were happening during this time? New programs, new degrees, new methods of measuring ef- effectiveness, things like that. Well, those are different questions. On the new degree front, one of the sad stories that I tell is the efforts to create a doctor of arts degree that would be essentially a specialty degree in college teaching. Um, there were dozens of universities that created those degrees, um, again, with a huge infusion of cash from foundations, because there was, again, an awareness that um, research was king, at least um, uh, in terms of status, um, uh, that um, most university professors weren't um, uh, getting anything more than the most rudimentary training in how to be a college teacher. So why not make a degree about college teaching? And we did. Um, and uh, what happened is, um, sadly, uh, um, uh, by the 1970s, when we start to have a glut of PhDs, um, universities will hire somebody with a PhD over somebody with a Doctor of Arts degree because, again, it had higher status. So it's precisely the status problematic that the degree was trying to correct that, in fact, became the graveyard for the degree. So, you know, that didn't work. Um, there are other technologi- uh, technological, um, uh, quote, solutions or reforms during this time, including uh, so-called program learning, which was brought to us from the laboratory of B.F. Skinner, the behaviorist at Harvard, and other behaviorists. Um, and here the idea was, look, um, maybe we can solve this problem by mechanizing in a certain way. Um, and Skinner thought that you could do that through this thing that he called the teaching machine. Um, hmm. And and um, uh, it had a, a small and brief vogue uh, um, around the country. Um, so these are all kind of you know um, uh, reforms, mostly failed reforms um, that that uh, you know that dot the landscape during that time. Hmm. So it's interesting that in your your closing chapter. Uh, when you are describing the complaints about teaching that sort of run through the whole book, um, the notes that many of the administrators and politicians are sounding, um, as well as the reforms that they're trying to institute during this uh, period, the 1990s and later, it was, as you put it, um, old wine and new bottles. Um, I, I remember when I was applying to college during this period that you note uh, that the major advertising message uh, pushed by admissions departments was always this dichotomy between big and impersonal or small and personal. And it was obvious that you were supposed to choose the small and personal. So even these big state universities were marketing themselves as these intimate spaces of learning. And I'm, and I'm sure they still do. Uh, so I, I guess the question is just, is the theme of your book, uh, everything old is new again? Well, uh, I would say in some ways, yes, but not exactly. I know that's a wishy-washy answer. One thing I do want to emphasize to listeners is that uh, my book gives very short shrift to the last couple of decades. Um, And that was by design. I need to get under a page count. And I 
you know, uh, like every author, I had to make some strategic decisions. And I decided that my value added, to use one of those technical terms, um, would would be uh, um, better better used by describing earlier eras. I do think in recent decades, there's been both, uh, you know, more attention and more improvement uh, um, in this zone. Um, uh, uh, there's certainly more knowledge, more good research about what good college teaching is. Um, that is, there's been, you know, um, more writing and publication about the subject. Um, but I do think there's a, you know, plus a change, plus a men shows, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same element as well. Um, uh, I don't think, in fact, I know that most people who are professors haven't been exposed to that new literature about um, college teaching quality. And most of all, uh, our institutions haven't really demanded that they get exposed to it or that they alter their practice in accord with it. Hmm. So I, I guess what kind of contemporary applications do you see uh, for, for your book? What, what do you hope that readers get out of it as they, uh, as they read it? Well, um, th- this, this is where it gets uh, complicated because um, in some ways what I hope for is a kind of contradiction or paradox. What I hope for is that readers get a sense of how difficult it is to professionalize the teaching function at the university, um, how many mostly failed efforts there have been to do so, but also that they get a renewed sense of the need for doing so. Um, We cannot and we should not go on like this. College teaching is not nearly as good as it should be in part because we as educators and we as citizens have not demanded that it get better. Look at very recent past, Lane. Although we've seen demands for tuition refunds on the part of college students in the era of COVID-19, I haven't seen any broad student-led, student-inspired movement to demand that teaching, quant teaching, get better. Uh, Now, at the same time, and this goes back to the difficulties of professionalizing teaching, I also want to warn against mechanical solutions to this problem, which we've all seen in different iterations, that become box-checking exercises and don't really improve anything. So we can all imagine different sorts of bureaucratic regimes that might come in and say, okay, Since we want discussion in the classroom, what we're going to do is we're going to demand or require that every teacher ask and answer at least five questions in every class. We're going to set up cameras to measure whether this happens, and we're going to reward or penalize people based on the outcomes. Um, You know, we can all imagine useless consequences coming from that, or in fact, nefarious ones, right? Um, where this becomes quite literally a bureaucratic exercise rather than something that actually improves teaching. So I want it to be professionalized, but I also understand the inhibitors on that. And I also understand how dangerous it can be. And to, to be more literal, the dangers of doing it poorly. Who was, uh, who was your best teacher? Hmm. 
Um, there were several, but um, uh, one of them, whom I mentioned at the start of the book, was Eviato Zerubbabel, who was my undergraduate teacher in sociology at Columbia in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, and uh, one of the things that was brilliant about Eviato was just the commitment and the enthusiasm that he communicated in the classroom. Um, in many ways, he was a very traditional teacher. Um, uh, it was mostly Eviadar talking. But I do think actually you can learn that way. And another theme of the book is actually what a multi-headed beast college teaching and learning is. I think there are great lecture classes and terrible ones, just like there are great discussion classes and terrible ones. Um, and most of all, what I got from Eviadar was how important it was to use another metaphor that we've been discussing here, to personalize instruction. Even though he was lecturing, which in many ways is an impersonal medium because it's just him talking, his lectures themselves were highly personal insofar as he described personal applications of all the concepts that he was elucidating. So one of the ones that stuck with me is he was lecturing about the sociological concept of a boundary. And of course, almost every boundary is uh, a social construction, um, right? It's something that human beings created. It's not natural. Um, Every border, um, uh, every checkpoint, they're all made by people. And Rubavel, who was from Israel, Um, and uh, like almost everyone in Israel, it served in the armed forces, he described during the Six-Day War marching into Gaza. Hmm. And what a strange head rush that was, because, of course, the earth is the same, right? Hmm. Um, uh, It's just that human beings have made this, this, again, this, this social entity called a border entirely constructed, entirely invented, but has enormous consequences in our lives. And, you know, um, 40 years later, I'm still talking about that example. Hmm. Well, I think it's, uh, it's definitely true that almost all of us in education have that, uh, have those, those few special people that make us see the world a little differently. And, and it just exemplifies the importance of, of teaching. Well, Dr. Zimmerman, in just a couple of minutes that we have left, uh, maybe you could just talk about a, a bit about what projects you're working on next. Well, I just finished another book, a much smaller book uh, of a very different kind called Free Speech and Why You Give a Damn. Mm. Sorry, Free Speech and Why You Should Give a Damn. <laughs> uh, uh, that was an interesting Freudian slip. Um, and uh, uh, the book is different in many ways. Um, it's radically shorter, but I think the most important difference is it's co-authored with a cartoonist, Signe Wilkinson, who's been a cartoonist for the Philadelphia Inquirer and Daily News for many years, and among other things, won a Pulitzer Prize for her cartooning. Um, and this book is an attempt to try to remind Americans about the historic importance of free speech, um, which of course does come up in the book we're discussing in the Amateur Hour, especially mm. restrictions on professor speech during the Cold War, which I alluded to. But this is a much broader um, uh, and and uh, um, uh, argument about why we need the concept. And uh, I think we wrote it at a time when a lot of people, especially young people, uh, are really doubting and in some places rejecting free speech. Um, Free speech is just a tool of the powerful. Um, Free speech is something that allows the powerful, especially uh, rich white people, to lord things over others. 
um, to insult and denigrate, especially racial minorities. And what we try to do is look backwards. It is a history book, uh, albeit a modest one, to remind people that actually it's the opposite, that free speech has always been a weapon of the oppressed. Indeed, it's often been the only weapon that they have. And is that out now or coming soon? Uh, no, it's coming to you on April 1, which, of course, is April Fool's Day, and we'll try to make a joke out of that um, uh, 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 in, in 2021. Excellent, excellent. Well, we will look forward to that. Uh, Dr. Jonathan Zimmerman is the author of The Amateur Hour, A History of College Teaching in America. It is out now, published in 2020 by Johns Hopkins University Press. And I, I really can't recommend this book enough. It would be, of course, fantastic in a a seminar on history or education. But more than that, I think it really is one of those rare academic books that really allows scholars and teachers and administrators, anyone in higher education, really to step back and take sort of that wide angled view of our own work. And it puts so much of that in context. So I really encourage our listeners to take a dive into the book. And Dr. Zimmerman, thank you for writing it. And thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, Lane. It was fun. Well, and thank you for listening to New Books in History. Make sure to subscribe to our feed on any of the major podcast listening services so that you can keep up with the latest and best books that are out there right now. Thanks, and we will catch you again soon.